0: So we're calling this Greater Than, right? And so the series is Greater Than. We're kind of looking at the church specifically, but then beyond the church kind of individually. We all kind of have a, an outlook on life. And, and I think in order to reach that point in life, or in order for the church to be what God's called it to be, there are certain things in our day-to-day lives, or certain things in our actions, in our nature that has to be greater than other things. And that's kind of the, the whole vision for this series. Uh, today's scripture comes out of Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses uh, 8 through 13. And this is Paul writing in, in this letter to the uh, church in Ephesus. And Paul says that, although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is pl- what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church listen to this part so that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now may be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places so the wisdom of God may be made known This is what was in accordance to the internal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. This part in this passage that kind of jumps out at me says that the church is kind of this vessel that God's going to use to make his wisdom known to the earth, right? He, God in, in his might and mighty has chosen to limit himself and move through the church. And the church is supposed to be this bright light of God, the hope of the world, the salt of the earth that goes out into all the world. But the truth is, it doesn't take long going through... The social media, or clicking on the news, or reading an article, that you learn that the church is kind of in a pretty difficult season. Um, you can go back a few years ago and you see the scandal that hit the Catholic Church, with all the the travesty that happened there. You can fast forward a few years to um, a, a pretty prevalent evangelical church willow creek where the the pastor was accused of uh sexual misconduct and and the church kind of rallied behind him and said you know what he didn't do it but but the whole thing was handled in a way that he could kind of sneak by even if he did do it and it ended up with the whole elder board and the main staff pastors all resigning because of how the situation was was handled and even now you look at the the southern baptist convention who is the largest Um, protestant denomination in america today and it's just been rocked with a one bomb after another of of senior leadership and, and scandal and all these things going on. And, and you kind of have the world is on the outside looking in. And if you don't even, if, don't even take this modern day, all this stuff that's happening currently, you can look back at like the crusades and things that the church did that was, that was uh, done in God's name, but not in God's way. And, and there's this sense of the world looking in and the church that is supposed to be this light, this, this, this city on a hill is nothing but And you kind of look at at where it's at, and I think about Matthew 5, 13, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is talking and he says that you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it is thrown out and trampled underfoot. And there's this sense of the church has lost its saltiness. It's lost its ability to, to create this amazing Taste. If you think about what salt does when you put it on food, it, it doesn't just give it a salty flavor, but it brings out the best in that food. I've seen people put salt on watermelon, right? And this is really weird because watermelon's not supposed to be salty. But then I tried it, and it's actually pretty neat because it doesn't make it salty; it makes it more watermelony, right? If that's even a thing. So there's this sense of of the church is supposed to 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 be this contrast that that brings the light of God, but it also just makes life richer and sh- better. And, and so there's this sense of of the church is supposed to be the salt of the earth. That's us. We're supposed to be that. But when you look at the church, it's almost like it's lost its saltiness. And so the, the cry of this message is, 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 how do we get that back? And the, and the good news is, the good news is that if you look at church history, you look at the Bible specifically, it's like the church has this ability to regenerate itself, it's one of those things. Like if you, if, you know, if you cut off what is it half a starfish, you get two starfish because it grows back. And the churches, if you look at like the Old Testament prophets, they come in and they tell the church everything they're doing wrong, and it's like God is saying this, and it's usually followed with a time of persecution or hardship. And it's like this whole strategy of, of getting the church to turn back to God. And so even though it gets to this place where it's nowhere where it should be, there's this built-in design that God has built that says, hey, Let's get back to the thing, way things are supposed to be. You even go to the New Testament, you see Jesus and he's talking to the religious leaders and he calls them sons of hell. Like there's this rebuke that says, you are religious, you're supposed to be my people, but you don't even know the scripture. You care more about your own image than about my image. And and there's this sense of Jesus coming in and transforming the church and being renewing the church, making the church this power that it is. And you see in Acts, the way it takes off after Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in and enters the people. So there's, there's this sense Of of Even when things seem to go awry, God's got a plan for his people to bring them back to his purpose. And so when I think about the church, I think about what we're going through right now and the the church generally and how it's got this bad image. I can't quit the church. I can't get to this place where like, you know what, let's just throw in the towel and do whatever we can and not even worry about the church. Because and, and the temptation to say, well, yeah, duh, you're the pastor. Of course you can't quit the church. But here's the deal. I don't take a salary from the church. Uh, we are making it with doing coffee stuff and banking, and, and I don't need the church. But there's a calling and there's a desire on my heart because I can see the power of the church. I can see, I look back at history and I see things that happen where the church, if it weren't for the church's action, if it weren't for the people of God, that those things would have never taken place. I think recently with Lauren's dad, I had the opportunity to just lead him to, to surrender his life to Jesus. And and for the last so many years, every time we would go to North Carolina and visit Lauren's family, her dad was, honestly, he was high on pain pills because he was in so much pain and his life was, he was full of regret. You could talk to him. It was just like, he was just in this miserable place in life. And, and he had this desire to be a grandfather for Addie Lee, but all he ever really did was sit around he was not mobile, he was not himself, and it was just, we longed to see the old Bobby, right? And then we uh, had the opportunity to lead him to the Lord. And then we go back up there a couple weekends ago and I took a video. It's like a four minute long video on my phone. And he's like on the ground laughing and giggling and playing with Addie Lee. He's happy. He's joking around. We go eat dinner and he's like telling, he's so full of life. And there's just this, this instant kind of transformation that happens. I think about Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus is this tax collector. He's a, he's a crook. He's taking people's money. And then he meets Jesus and in an instant, he he wants to follow Jesus and his life is completely transformed. He gets to a place and says, you know what? Not only am I done taking money, he goes back and repays money he took. There's this, this instant transformation that, that, that God has in people's lives. And we as the church have the ability to take that, take that light, take Jesus to those people. And I just so it excites me. I'm passionate about what the church can do. I think about uh one of the stories that I heard and kind of looking through this message um is with Dietrich Bonhoeffer and if you don't know who he is he's one of the the greatest theologians most famous theologians people read him even now years late, years after his death he's written a ton of books some of the most fam- one of the most famous ones is a cost of discipleship you may have heard that but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in a time where he looked around and Hitler and the Nazi regime Was beginning to just take over Germany, even to the point where, like, they were Hitler had this plan to take over the churches and give the churches this power, but in turn, they kind of would do what he said. And so he would end up with all the power and, and, Bonhoeffer would look around and he would see the church being corrupted by power in the place where they were worshiping Hitler more than they were worshiping God. And he, his heart was broken. He saw this strategy of the church kind of folding to have this status and this government that was growing instead of fo- following Christ. And, and his heart was broken and he knew that something had to change. He could see the, the hardships that were ahead. And so he started a thing called the Confessing Church. When he saw the, the church, public church was was beginning to get corrupted by power. He started this confessing church, which was a kind of a movement of people who were dedicated to following Christ no matter the cost. Uh, they faced all kinds of hardship. The, the government ended up placing laws that said that you couldn't even mention the name of somebody who was a member of this Confessing Church. So so they took away the, any kind of power to talk about their movement. The government passed laws that said they couldn't collect money, so they took away their funding. Then they passed laws that said they couldn't even meet. They couldn't gather, not just in a private space, but they couldn't gather in public. They faced all kinds of opposition from the world around them. But Dietrich was determined. He was determined To to see God's people rise up and fight this evil that was the Nazi regime, Uh, he had a friend come visit him, and the friend was like, hey, man, this is the George paraphrase, right? But he's like, look, what you're doing is great. I mean, God's people need to stay firm. God's people, they need to have power. They need to be connected to him, but this is a little intense, (laughs) like, maybe take a step back, you know, and... And Dietrich is like, no, he, in fact, he starts this uh, seminary. It's the Confessing Church Seminary. It only lasted for two years, right? But he starts this seminary because he's at this place. He's like, we have to raise up leaders. We have to train leaders. And he's having this conversation with a friend. He's like, this is a little intense. So he takes that friend, they get on a boat and they cross this body of water. They climb up on this hill where they can can kind of look out over the land. And they look out and they see uh, Nazi planes landing and German troops being trained. And this is the, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but, but Bonhoeffer looks at his friend and he says, Hitler is raising up a new generation of disciples, Germans in training whose disciplines are set to establish a new kingdom, a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. And we all know this by being able to look back at the past and we see the, the things like the Holocaust that the Nazi and, and Hit, Nazis and Hitler did and that the cruelty and hardness of that kingdom But Dietrich continues on, he says, it is necessary to establish a superior discipline among the Christians if the Nazis are going to be defeated. He says there has to be a contrast. There has to be this saltiness. There has to be something that's going to fight that if God's kingdom is going to advance. If we're going to stop this kingdom of hardship and cruelty, we have to raise up disciplined disciples who are going to fight this. He says, you have to be stronger than the tormentors that you see everywhere today. He says, you have to be stronger than them. The church has to be stronger than that, points out over the the Nazis that he's just been talking about. And that's where we get the inspiration for this message. This has to be greater than that. It goes on in this this kind of ragtag school of preachers. I mean, maybe 40 to 50 leaders tops comes out of this school. After two years, it closes. You can go into the Poland area now and see that there's a a rock that's kind of memorial and a little garden to recognize that it used to be there, but it's like in the middle of nowhere. This little, we would look at as a failure. This good-for-nothing seminary that closed after two years that raised up maybe 50 leaders but we look back at history and we can say that those 50 leaders, because of them, we now tell the story of the fall of the Third Reich, the fall of the Nazis and the rise of the church in Germany because of that dedication to raising up a culture that's contrast to what's going on around us. Not Not to condemn the world, not to say you're bad, you're evil, but to say there is a better way. There is a way full of life. And the way that we achieve that is we have to be stronger than that. And so I have this, kind of the introduction for this whole series is, is, I want us to kind of fall back in love with the church. I want us to fall back in love with God's design. And even though it's flawed and even though it's full of hypocrites and even though it's full of people that are trying their hardest and messing up because it's real people, and there's no perfect people in the church, right? It's messy because we're real and we have a God that loves us and forgives us and wants to use us even though we're so imperfect. And I just want us to fall back in love with the church, And so what we have today is is I just want to give you four images that the Bible uses to kind of paint a picture of what the church is supposed to be. And the first image is this. It's a bride. We see it in Ephesians five. I preached on it a while back about. The, and we talk about the the contrast between complementarian and egalitarian, and there's this debate over and over again about what the the status in marriages is supposed to be like? But if you go back and you really look at the purpose of this of that passage at the very end of it, Paul is like, "Hey, marriage is a mystery, but it's the bride of Christ, and it's this picture of this love letter of, of that that Jesus loves the church, and it's this this passionate." Feelings, this passionate emotion that Jesus has for the church. Genesis one and two, they open up with a woman and a man. Revelation twenty one and twenty two, the Bible closes with a woman and a man. The Bible opens with the wedding and closes with the wedding. It opens with marriage and ends with marriage. Whether you want to believe it or not, marriage and the bride of Christ—that is the central metaphor of the Bible. Our Bible is a love story of our God who came to save us. The Israelites, when they're leaving the, the Egypt, God is delivering them from Egypt, and then we can read about it in the Exodus. They're, they have this Exodus that's happening. God gives them four invitations. And those four invitations are the same words, the same invitations that a Jewish man would give his wife on their wedding night. Jesus is doing, or God is doing more than delivering. He is proposing There's this love story all throughout scripture. And one of these, uh, an incredible picture of it is in the first three chapters of Hosea. If you've never read Hosea, there's this, uh, he's called to to enter into marriage with a lady named Gomer. Like, first off, if your name is Gomer, that should have been a red flag, right? So so he's called called to enter into this um, marriage with this lady named Gomer, right? And she becomes his wife. They have kids. And then everything falls apart. She cheats on him. She's an adulterous woman. She, she goes out and she uh, creates all this debt with all these different lovers and she's in this place where she's broken and God tells Hosea to go out, go out and not punish her, not to divorce her, but to go out and literally pay off her debts, to pay her lovers where she created, recommit himself to her love her passionately despite how she has turned her back on him. And this is this beautiful picture of Jesus. That's the gospel. We spiritually over and over again have cheated on God. We've put things above him, whether it's our family life, whether it's our work life, whether it's addiction or a hobby. There's things that we've done where we've given our allegiance to things other than God. And he said, and this is the definition of sin. When we elevate things above God, even good things. But Jesus came and he died on the cross. He paid our debt. You see that picture? He paid that debt because he loves us so much that he wants us to be a part of his bride. We are his people. The Bible is a love story of Jesus giving it all, dying on the cross so that we can be in relationship with him. That's why it's called the passion. This, this, the, the bride is this image of God's passion for his people. He didn't just create us to stand up above us and Lord over us. He created us for relationship. So let's get back to being in relationship with God. The, the, the next thing that we see as an image of God is the temple. And the temple was the presence of God. If the bride is the passion, then the temple was the presence of God. And we see another beautiful picture of this in the Old Testament. In um, Exodus 33, I'm not going to read the whole story for the sake of time, but I challenge you to go read it. Moses is having a conversation with God. And and God has said, you know what? I delivered you to to go into the promised land. So go. Go to the promised land. But I'm not going with you. Right? Moses is like, okay, hold on. What up? you're not going with us, <laughs> like, that's the whole purpose. Like, what is the point of going to the promised land if you're not there? What, what's going to distinguish us from all the other people if you're not with us? We're your people. We're, you're what makes us us. What's going to distinguish us? I can just picture all the other Israelites being like, well, um, there's circumcision. And that, I remember that. That makes me pretty distinct. What about the dietary laws? What about the fact that they have to, to rest on Sunday? All the work that they could be accomplishing, they're not allowed to work. What about the feast and the festivals? There's all these things that we do that make us different from the other people, Moses. And Moses is like, yeah, yeah, but that's not the thing. You know, like the thing is God. Those things, they're, they're part of what we do, but, but those things are even empty without the presence of God. And I see that as a picture of the church. What do we do? What makes us different? Yeah, we gather on Sundays, Yeah, we have worship songs, yeah, there's preaching, yeah, there's small groups, and there's uh, kids' classes, and there's um, outreach projects, and there's all these things, yeah, that makes us unique and different, and and we... But, but, but those aren't the thing. <laughs> the thing is God's presence. That's what makes Sunday mornings great. That's what makes life throughout the week great. It's God's presence in us. You keep going on into the New Testament, and, and the people are actually called holy of holies, as, as one, trans, one translation puts it. Like you and I, the holy of holies. If you go back and you look at the temple, that, the holy of holies is where God's presence reigned on earth. And now that's us. So you and I, we're the presence of God. Our temple is the presence of God. It's where God reigns. So if we're going to fall in love with the church, we have to realize that we're the bride, we're the temple. And the third thing is we're family. We're family. John 13, 34 says, I give you a new commandment, that you are to love one another just as I have loved you. This is Jesus saying, love like I loved you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The way people know you're the church is by how you love each other. <laughs> I mean, that's family, right? And there's this picture of loving one another, but, but the difficulty is when Jesus says to love like I love, his love is far different from the way that we picture love today. He goes on in other parts of the scripture, you know, Jesus, love your enemies, Like, are you sure, Jesus? Like, I mean, come on, love your enemies. Like, yeah, love your enemies. There's this sense of loyalty to God's love so much that even when somebody wrongs us, we still love them. So there's this sense of, if we're looking at the church as family, we're there for each other, even if we get on each other's nerves a little bit. Nobody look at me, nobody elbow anybody, right? There's this sense of being there for one another, no matter what, when life is hard, maybe when somebody needs some tough love, but we're there for each other. I think about the, the picture of family for me and my brother, right? Me and my brother are close, we're friends, but it hasn't always been like that. There are oftentimes growing up when he would get on my nerves. I can remember times fighting him where he would like hit me and run away because he was always faster and skinnier than me, right? But then I would remember that and I'd hold that grudge for, for hours and he'd eventually forget and come out of his room and I would pummel him, right? Like <laughs> there's this sense that we would fight and I would I would pick on him, he would pick on me, we would bully each other. There's one time where... We were um, at this baseball field and there's these kids that are, I'm kind of off on one side and I look over and there's these kids that are kind of picking on Franklin and and bullying him a little bit. And I'm like, oh no. (laughs) And so I walk over there and get in their faces and luckily there was no fight because there was plenty of adults around, but I was prepared to fight. There was lots of yelling and screaming and some pushing and these kids were bullying my brother and they were not allowed to do that. I mean, I could do that minutes before, but they're not allowed to do it, right? And there's this sense of being in the church globally where you may disagree theologically or you might be offended by something they said, but but we love one another anyway. We love each other through the hard times. We don't bash each other. We don't talk bad about each other. And, and I don't really see that as a problem here at Revive, but I see a problem as that in general. If you, you know, being a pastor, I'm on pastor Twitter, right? And you see all these pastors yelling at each other and they're different denominations, different beliefs. But there's this, this, like, you would think they absolutely hate each other. But the truth is, if somebody's got something wrong, you can speak that calmly, gently in love. But if you're in a public forum, we need to be edifying, lifting each other up. The church is family. This is God's love for each other. The world knows us by the way we love each other. No wonder people don't want to go to church because they look at the church and they see how bad they fight. What if we kept those conversations that need to happen in love inside the church building, inside the walls, one on one, to however, following Matthew 18 when it talks about church discipline, following those. But outside, when people are looking in, we're talking positively about each other. The church is supposed to be a bride, the temple, family, and the last thing is the body. This is the purpose of God. Think about First 1 Corinthians 1720, it says, as it is, there are many members, yet one body. I was reading a commentary on this and it, it really convicted me because I think that a lot of Christians today act like theists. And here's what I mean. An atheist is someone who doesn't believe God exists at all, right? Then a theist believes that there is a God, but he's like up above, uh, being, you know, he's mighty in power, but he's not really involved. He's not really down here. And a Christian thinks God is—he's up and above, but he's also down here and he's in us, right? Go back to being the bride and the temple and the presence and all that. But the problem is, a lot of times we get to a place where we pray. Lord, I'd, I, I pray that you would help my neighbor. Uh, they're struggling financially. Would you just help them in that situation? And we refuse t- to take our own feet and our own hands over and act and help our neighbor. See, Jesus and God wants to use his people. There's, it talks about having gifts in Scripture. It talks about us being having the ability to be the hands and feet of Jesus. There's a sense of being a Christian is praying, but it's also acting. And if we get to a place where all we do is pray, 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 and expect God to move without using people, we've lost sight of what the church is supposed to do. We're supposed to be making a a divine difference because of the way God uses us. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, for some reason it seems that God chooses to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly and in the twinkle of an eye doesn't really make sense, but God chooses to use his people when he could just do it in the snap of a finger. John Tyson, when he's talking about this being the body of Christ, he, he uses a film to illustrate, and he talks, this film's called The D- Divine Diving Bell and the Butterfly, Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and it's captivating. I haven't watched the movie, but to hear him tell the story is captivating. It's about a man who has a seizure, and he's, the, he's like an editor of a magazine and he has this seizure and the seizure throws him into what they call locked in syndrome, where he's literally laying in a hospital bed, fully conscious, fully awake, fully aware, but unable to do anything with his body. And his heart has all this de- desires. His heart has all this w- desire to have life and to communicate. But the only thing he could do is blink one eye. And they actually go and they sew the other eye shut. And through working with a nurse, painfully, he learns to communicate with the blinking of that one eye. And through the power and the ability to blink that one eye over a long period of time, he writes this book called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which is later made into a movie that wins all kinds of awards. And it takes this long time for him to communicate through the blinking of an eye. It's like, what if... What if he had his whole body? What if he had that whole ability? And it's like this, there's this picture of the church where God wants to use the whole body of the Christ. He wants to use the whole body of the church. He wants everybody to use their gifts. But the church has lost the focus on being the body. And it's like he's only got access to the one blinking eye. And he's out carrying out his mission through the blinking eye of those few believers. But what if the whole church, what if every church here in Newton County, what if every church were to connect to God on the the ability of being able to know his heart like the blinking eye knows the heart? and can move in a way. What could God accomplish? How would our city change? How would our state change? How would our nation change? We, listen, we live in America. I talked about this at the beginning, about the kind of the state of the church in America. We are now the mission field. There are people in Africa and Asia who are sending missionaries to America because of the state of the church in America. We are declining the Wesleyan denomination increased by 1% in the past year, and it's one of the only denominations that grew at all. And most of that growth comes from transfer, not just new believers. And seriously, as the American church is in a, in a terrible state. But what would happen if those who are in the church connected with the heart, like this guy's blinking eye? Where would we go? What would we accomplish The church has this incredible power to move. The church has this incredible power to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We see it happen all the time. You can go back and you can look at stories of revival, stories of of past history when people have written. You can look at stories in your own life where you've seen God move in your own life. Like God has a power to absolutely wreck people, change their lives, and, and, and this contrast of making it rich and beautiful. And he's called the church to do that. So the challenge for today's message and as, we get, and as we go through this series is going to be ways that we accomplish that. Things like worship being greater than idolatry, hunger being greater than apathy. Things we're going to talk about and how we accomplish that. But in your own life, what is something in your life that needs to be greater than that so that God can fulfill his mission through you? We're to be the bride, the temple, the family, and the body of Christ. Let's be the church. Let's love the church. Let's be excited about its ability and excited about its future because God is going to use us. There's no plan B. It's all about the church. Jesus gave his life for the church. Let's be the church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the gift of your presence No other world religion has the ability to communicate with their God. That's both this almighty God, but this intimate, loving God. We have this beautiful relationship with you. You're absolutely perfect, and you choose to use us imperfect people. Let us fall so deeply and passionately in love with you and your plan to use us to reach the world. There might be times where our life feels helpless, where our world feels helpless. We lose all hope, but that's not the case. There's always hope in you. And I just pray that we can be your light, that we can be the salt of the earth. We wouldn't lose our saltiness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.